You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Jim Dale is an English actor, composer, director, narrator, singer and songwriter. In the UK, he is known as a pop singer of the 1950s who became a leading actor at the National Theatre. In British film, he became one of the regulars in the carry-on films. In the US, he is most recognised as a leading actor on Broadway, as well as for narrating all seven of the Harry Potter audiobooks in the American market, for which he received two Grammy Awards out of six nominations. He's also well known for his role in the hit ABC series Pushing Daisies, and Jim starred in the Disney film Pete's Dragon. He was nominated for a BAFTA award for portraying a young Spike Milligan in Adolf Hitler, My Part and His Downfall. As a lyricist, Jim was nominated for both an Academy Award and a Golden Globe Award for the song Georgie Girl, the theme of the 1966 film of the same title. Jim, welcome to Brits in the Big Apple. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> I have to say, uh, normally at this point, I ask my guests to give me uh, a potted history of their career journey so far. But I feel like you have had so many chapters that I really want my opening question to be, how do you summarize your life so far? Well, no, that is a good question. How do you summarize it? Well, the fact is that, you know, when, when you do a few extra things, it means that people start to cop compartmentalize you. They put you in a, a little cubby saying he's an actor. And, and then you say, no, I'm not. I, I sing as well. Oh, well, we'll put you in a cubby hole for a singer. And we'll, yes, but I also write. Well, we'll put you in a... And the reason that I haven't worked for many, many years, over 80 years, is because nobody quite knew what to do with me, especially the agents. You know, and uh, I've had a problem of putting everything together to make it into some sort of uh, run, running order as what 80 years in show business has done for me. I think it's kept me alive more than anything. You know, I'm thrilled to bits that I've reached this age. I started ballet when I was about nine years of age for, for seven years, nine years of ballet, tap, ballroom dancing and all of that. And I think what that did to start off with was give me the confidence to actually walk on a stage, you know, movement. And that's been part of my whole life, movement. And it was that that started me off in show business, uh, on, in musical when I was 17 years old. I was actually going to ask you where your early influences were. Was dancing the, the, the thing that started to whet the appetite? It was musical. I, I used to go along to see it. You know, musical in those days used to be for the family. Very, very clean material. Uh, later on came, came the double entendres and the subtle things, but uh, you could go along to the musical palaces with granny and granddad and uh, have a good, all of you enjoy a good laugh. I love that humor because those jokes were funny. And I, I remember saying to my father, that's what I want to do, to just make people laugh. It would be wonderful. I can't think of anything better than laughter. And so at the age of 17, I decided, let's try it out as a stand-up comic. And you were one of the youngest professional comedians Se at that seven, I was 17 years that's old. incredible. Yes. How, how, did you, how did you cut your teeth on that? Well, um, I, I thought I'll, I'll go... I can't go along and do ballet for an audition for a touring show about teenage talent. So I thought I'll do impressions. 
So I went along and I did two or three impressions. And uh, the, the guy in charge said, those impressions were terrible. <laughs> and I remember, so, well, I thought they were very good. I sounded just like those people. And he, he said, yes, but nobody knows who your mother's butcher is, <laughs> local policeman. I said, well, I thought that's funny, you know. An impressionist doing impressions of people you've never heard of. Yeah. And he said, no, no. <laughs> but you fell over when you came on. I said, well, I, I tripped on the curtain. I'm sorry about that. He said, no, no, no. Why don't you go home, get an act up where you fall over, come back tonight, and if you've got two or three minutes, we'll put you on sight on the scene. Wow. And so I raced back home, and I quickly thought something, to put something together, and I got an old costume, that I tuxedo that I cut down to cut the legs down to about knee length. And I went back on stage that night, and uh, he hired me to join the company and started touring as a 17-year-old tumbler. Where, where, does your, where does that confidence come from? Where did that early confidence come from? Uh, well, it came from a confidence of having a, a lovely, supportive family. Mm -hmm. My mother had six sisters. That's amazing, though. And, and I love that you chose comedy at that early stage, because actually, in a way, that's probably one of the most challenging genres. So I, I spent a lot of time on stage moving, do, doing a lot of movement. Um, in fact, what my entrance onto the stage was not walking on. I had two stagehands swinging me, one's holding my arms, one's holding my legs, and they would swing me backwards and forwards. And when I'd say now, they'd let go. And that was my entrance, and it broke the ice. It nearly broke my neck as well. You've clearly got an amazing ability to read and respond to an audience, which I think is what people who are amazing professional comedians can do. Yeah. Where, how have you honed that? Many, many young actors would love to do what I was a able to do, which was to talk directly to the audience. But I had the opportunity of, of working with an audience because laughter is created by you and the audience. The two of you work together. It's not you, just you on your own. You need a receptive audience. That's how you learn your trade. And when I brought that comedy into the theater in a play, you know, it helped considerably. I really love that idea, actually, and I can completely see how that gives you such an amazing grounding. It's a confidence that yeah. you've, you've gained through being on your own up there on the stage. Yeah. Now you're mixing with a group of people on stage as well, and I'd never worked with people until I did my first Shakespeare play. I can't jump too quickly through your life because I feel like that would cut out your early pop idol status. Well, there was a show in England called Six Five Special, and they asked me if I'd like to go along as a comedian to warm the audience up prior to the show, a live performance. So I was there, and I borrowed a guitar from one of the kids there just to finish my little routine of jokes with a song, and it's a silly little pop song. And afterwards, the producer came up. He said, you know, those jokes, I said, yes, he said, were terrible. I said, well, I thought they were funny. He said, no, but that song you did at the end, that was very good. So come back next week. We'll give you a couple of songs. I said, excuse me, I'm a stand-up comic. He said, no, you used to be a stand-up comic. You're now a pop singer. I said, oh, really? So next week I came along. I sang two songs in that show. And who should be watching but George Martin, a 27-year-old recording manager who was just starting off. And he phoned me the next day, and he said, I'd love you to be my first pop singer, would you like to do that? I have an, a jazz singer called Cleo Lane, who I'm promoting, 
Uh, but I'd like it to be my first pop singer. So I stayed with George for a couple of years just before the Beatles came along. There were such a lot of junky songs, you know. It was called Gilly Gilly, Ossum Fethen, Cats and Ellen Bogan by the Sea. Let's stick with the theme of music because you then have been a songwriter and, and a very successful one as well. It was very lucky, you know. It was just a hobby, writing songs. And then uh, Tom Springfield, the brother of Dusty Springfield, got in touch with me one day. He said, they just made a film called Georgie Girl and I've written the song, uh, the music for it. I'd like to know if you could write the lyrics. So let's go along and look at it. And three different versions of Georgie Girl. The film came out and the song went on to become uh, number two over here in America, I think. And sold over 11 million records around the world. That's right, yes. It's really impressive. Is it hard writing songs? I find it not hard, but uh, it doesn't happen all the time because I'm not a professional songwriter. I get an idea for a song and uh, then I write it down. I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I wrote a song about a man who fell in love with his bicycle? And uh, it's called My Punctured Romances Perished. That was the title of that song. I sent it along to the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. <laughs> they sent it back. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your appearances in the Carry On films because I think that is, um, when people think of Jim Dale, mm. that's probably the first thing that they think about. Clearly played a seminal part and, and I think mainly uh, cast as the hapless romantic. The young boy who always gets in trouble, yeah. you know, a bit yeah. of an idiot, I didn't mind that. How, how did you get into Carry On films in the first place? Carry On wasn't my first film. I did a film for the same people called Raising the Wind. And it starred Kenneth Williams, who was one of the Carry On members, as you know. When I read the script, it wasn't a very big one. Kenneth Williams was a conductor in a music school, and somebody plays a wrong note. And in the script, it said, the second Kenneth Williams yells out, where's your music? And the second trombone player says, I haven't got it. Oh, yes, I have. I was sitting on it all the time. And I read that. I thought, that's not an Oscar-winning <laughs> performance. So and then I realized Kenneth Williams has a very distinctive nasal voice. Nasal night this. So I thought I'll take the mickey out of Kenneth Williams. So direct said, action. And Kenneth Williams yelled out, where's your music? And I stood up and I yelled, I haven't got it. Oh, yes, I have. I was sitting on it all the time. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> <laughs> broke up laughing. The, the whole studio was falling about like, except Mr. <laughs> Kenneth Williams. I saw him pointing at the director, raising his fist at me and you know, stabbing his chest and shouting stuff. I couldn't hear what he was saying, but those gestures, you could recognize a mile away. And so the director came over. He said, no, all right, Jim, we, we'll film it this time, but please, you sound more like him than he does. So we shot the scene, and uh, that was it. I knew I'd never become a member of the carry-on team. Now, then a year later, the, I was asked to go back to the carry-on offices where I was asked if I'd like to become a permanent member. It was so exclusive to be a member of that team. I said, but Kenneth Williams hates me. And the director said, Kenneth came over to me and said, use him, for God's sake, use him. If you can take the mickey out of me and make me laugh at the same time, he's worth a fortune to you. Wow. Yeah. That's a brilliant story. I love that. I can't imagine there would be anybody that wouldn't have seen a carry-on film, but given that we have a very broad audience for this podcast, can you talk to me about some of the features of what makes a carry-on film? Well, the talents of the fact that these people are 
comedic actors and they are used to working with each other. And the joy about being part of the Carry On team was not taking the spotlight from that guy. They all gave. They knew that the spotlight would be on them at occasions throughout the film. And so when it came to another person's moment, we had to just focus on that. There was no improvisation. Nobody was allowed to tread on another person's line. That person was the, that moment on the screen. And it, it was a joy from early morning till late afternoon for eight solid weeks. Wow. Two and a half films a year we made. Did you ever sort of think, oh God, I just can't be funny today? No, but you have a group of people around you who, it's, you'll copy them, you'll, you'll see the way they're behaving and you can't help it. You just have to drop into step with their tempo. It sounds, it sounds amazing that you can, your job is so fun. People say, you know, what was life after the carry-on films, after the, the studio closed at six o'clock? What did you do with, with you, each other? I had four young children at that time and I'd left home five, probably at five o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock at night, and I needed time to see the children, to spend time with them, to help with the homework, then supper with them and then put them to bed. So that was beautiful and it's lovely to be stopped in the street when I go back to London and by somebody who is just so complimentary. Were you surprised at how popular and successful the carry-on films were? Because I can imagine when you're all in that bubble, maybe it can feel quite different when it suddenly gets mm. brought into the world, or did you know that you were onto something? Well, there, there came a time when I was doing the carry-on films that Laurence Olivier asked me to join the National Theatre. The National Theatre had matinees on a Wednesday or a Thursday, whatever. If you were making a film at the same time, you, you couldn't expect the film company to stop working for that Wednesday afternoon to enable you to do the matinee. I had to make a, a, a decision. When Laurence Olivier asked you to join the National Theatre, you give up everything. And, and was it through theatre that you came to be in the US? It was due to the Young Vic Theatre. Frank Dunlop opened the Young Vic Theatre and Scapino, which was written by Molière 300 years ago, was the first play they ever did there and it was a terrific success. We were asked to bring three plays by the Young Vic and the National Theatre to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which we did in 1974-75. And out of the three plays, little Scapino clicked with the critics and we were asked to bring it back to Broadway. Well, yes, to Broadway the next spring uh, to a place called Circle in the Square. And so we, we didn't realize that that particular theater was deep in the red and was destined to close any day. But we opened the show there, and within 12 weeks, I think they were in the, they were profiting again. And then we moved on to the Ambassador Theater for a further year. In fact, it's the only time in my career that I could honestly say we had 47 rave reviews from the New York critics. and. And is that the point, Jim, where you, you basically decided that you were going to move to the US more permanently? After that, after Scapino, I went back to England. And would you believe it, with all the success of the carry-ons and the that, 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 I couldn't get a job for a year after I left the National Theatre. And so I accepted one film called Pete's Dragon. And that was uh, uh, lovely. I went into Disneyland, as it were, and... Uh, came over here and one thing led to another to another. One play followed the film and I decided that it would be probably a good thing to keep working over here. Because in England, yes, you can keep going on, but later on there's only pantomime for you to do. Hugely impressive Broadway career and you've been nominated for a large number of Tony Awards as well. I think Americans will know your voice 
for your Harry Potter storytelling, mm-hmm. which of course is one of the biggest cultural exports that the UK has given the US yes. uh, more recently. Uh, tell me about that experience. Well, they were looking for someone, an English actor, to narrate the books. So they signed me up, and the first question after I'd signed the contract was, how many characters did you play? And I said, just the aunt and the nephew. <laughs> I said, what? I said, no, the other three guys were brilliant. <laughs> they did 31 characters. So there was quite a few red faces at the publishing office until I got in the studio, and then I, I didn't know I could do those voices. Um, I really didn't know, but... Uh, Which ones are your favorites? Tell me. Oh, well, uh, the first little voice I heard was Dobby. I love Dobby. I first heard him in Harrods, Harrods store. One winter, it was Christmas, and the, the elevator came up from the basement, and the doors opened. It was packed with people, and we all backed into it, all squashed into it, tight as sardines, and the doors closed. And in the silence going up... I heard this little voice behind me say, Excuse me, sir, can you take your bum out of my face? And I looked round and there's this little fellow squashed up behind me. I said, I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm terribly sorry. He said, that's all right, sir. They all do it. At least you're facing away from me. And I thought, I'll never forget oh, that voice. Jim, that's amazing. Also, it makes me wonder how you get your inspiration. <laughs> Let's go back to when I was 17 in musical. We toured a different city, a different town, every week for two and a half years. That's over 100 cities and all that. And you live in that town. You live in that city for a whole week. And I think... Looking back on it, I didn't know it at the time, but I think I was able to just sort of bring back some of the memories of those accents because it was very lucky that Harry Potter was English because I couldn't have done that if it was an American book because I can't do an American accent. You know, I sound like an Englishman doing an American yeah. accent, which is wrong. But in England, you know, I could play about with all these accents and it was really helpful having done that in the past. Have you found that... Uh, American and British audiences differ in their appreciation of you and... Obviously over here they don't know me from the carry-on films because they're only played at about four o'clock in the morning on some obscure cable channel so only somebody who can't sleep would recognize me later. It's the theatre audience that I thought were unbelievable but over here the standing ovation happened that, that was the first time I ever experienced it. And we timed it. It was a nine-minute standing ovation when we played Scapino at Circle in the Square. Wow. I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And so the enthusiastic audiences that I found on Broadway were unbelievable. Now the British audiences have copied that standing up at the very end. With, actually, everybody does it now, whether it's a good show or a bad show, because there's always somebody's mother in the audience who stands up first. But the American audience are, are wonderful. These days, I'm playing to smaller audiences, and I'm enjoying it just as much as playing to, like in the Christmas Carol, 20,000 people. Uh, came every night to see it, two or three times a day. So uh, I didn't even know whether it was Christmas, <laughs> Easter, oh let alone Christmas. And tell me what you're up to now. What are your current projects? Great thing is I've put together about 150 stories that have happened to me over the last 80 years. And this was purely for my grandchildren. I just, just wanted to leave them something about who this character was from the past. I started to write these stories purely for them. And other people then said, why don't you narrate your own story instead of just publishing it? I've done a number of one-man shows now, each show different, 
consisting of maybe eight to ten stories that last about an hour and a half. And then we have a question and answer with the small audiences to see which ones they liked, and, which is good. When you've got a small audience, they have a feeling you've actually looked at them, each and every one of them, by the, by the end of the evening. And so this is what I'm doing. I'm thrilled to bits to be doing it. I'm doing another show in the in middle of March up in uh, on the Hudson River to another beautiful little theater there. But this is a joy. There's not a lot for, for an aging actor like me to do. I don't want to go on to Broadway anymore. When you get to my age, the last thing you want to do is to sit in a dressing room waiting for your five-minute spot on that Broadway stage. I'd rather be at home with my lovely Julie. I've been at home with her now for 40 years, 42 years. But it's nice to do these little one-man shows every now and then, every couple of weeks. It gets me out, it gets Julie out, and we make new friends. And that it's about you. It's great. It's great. And then we have, I found the most interesting part is when you say, well, let's have a question and answer now. You know, which of these stories did you hate? And it's, that's not the point. They then ask their own questions. And so they start bringing up things that they want to hear about me, which encourages me then to go back into the biography to see which stories relate to what they were talking about. And as you said, you have done so many things over your career. If you were to look back on everything that you have achieved, what would be your proudest moments? You're putting me on a spot now. Um, I love everything I've ever done, or I wouldn't have accepted the choice uh, when it was offered to me. One of the proudest moments was, I think, Olivier saying, would you like to join us? And then saying, Jim is God's gift to Shakespeare's comedies. Now, wow. I can't think of anything I'd be more proud to hear than that. Um, but that's Shakespeare. And then there are, there are other moments that I've had some lovely critical acclaim from certain critics who um, were memorable, put me in tears when I read them. There's an old saying, if there's anything better than laughter, let me know. And there isn't as far as I'm concerned. And also it does does the person good delivering it because it makes you feel good inside. Um, I can, I get no greater pleasure on stage, off stage, yes, but on stage um, just doing comedy and hearing laughter. And uh, it's very infectious. And if I can keep doing that for the the next 25, 30 years, I'll, I'll do it. Jim Dale, thank you so much for all of your incredible talents for entertaining so many of us in so many different capacities and guises over the years. With a poem for you. I would love that. It came from Music Hall 150 years ago. It was an evening last November that I always shall remember. I was staggering down the lane in drunken stride when my knees began to stutter. So I lay down in the gutter and a pig came up and lay down by my side. Yes, it, it joined me in that gutter. We lay close as bread and butter. And then a lady passing by was heard to say, You can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. (laughs) You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. 
If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.